great message. When was the last time you did that? Took your, let your hair down, threw your whole self in, held nothing back, took a leap of faith. Well, this is the quality of life that is to exemplify followers of Jesus Christ. We are to be characterized by joy. So we're beginning a series today called Outrageous Contagious Joy. And as we walk through this series, we will be walking through the book of Philippians. And we're going to see that in these four short chapters, 150 verses, joy, rejoice, be glad in Christ, some variation thereof is mentioned 20 or so plus times. The context here is joy. Philippians, the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians is literally dripping with joy. Jesus was characterized by joy. Scripture says that Jesus, uh, a prophecy about Christ is that he was the man of sorrows. He bore our grief. And yet, Scripture says that, that God the Father anointed God the Son with the oil of joy above his companions. Joy is a characteristic of Christ. And we're going to talk about walking in this joy, abiding in this joy. But let me first give you, before we get into the book of Philippians, and we'll be spending some time in Philippians, let me first give you some characteristics about joy. First, joy is a promise. It is a promise of what it is to be in Christ. It is a promise of a Christian. It is a promise of fellowship with Christ. John chapter 15, verse 10 through 11. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments and abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John chapter 16, verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So we see that joy is a promise of our salvation. We also see that joy is a fruit, it's a byproduct of the presence of Christ. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. You have made me to know the path of life. Watch this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. If you recall, when Mary and Elizabeth were both pregnant with Jesus and John the Baptist, and they were in the same room, John, I'm sorry, yes, John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaped with joy because of the presence of the Messiah in Mary's womb. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says that a fruit of the Spirit is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's nine characteristics, nine evidences of the Holy Spirit alive and overflowing in our life. And one of these characteristics is joy. And we will also see as we walk through this series that joy is internal, joy is not external. Joy is based upon Christ. Joy is not based upon our circumstances. James chapter 1 verse 2. Joy shines against the backdrop of tribulation. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 4. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I have, I'm filled with comfort in all our afflictions. I am overflowing with joy. So we see then that joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is dependent upon Christ. 
Happiness, on the other hand, is dependent upon circumstances. In fact, the word happiness in and of itself is derived from the word happenstance or happenings or chance happenings. Chance. So happiness is tethered to our circumstances. If you find out you're pregnant, you're happy. If you get a promotion, you're happy. If you get a raise, you're happy. If many people are saying wonderful things about you, you're happy. But the problem with happiness is that it's a fair-weather friend. It will fellowship with you on the mountaintops of life, but when you descend into the valley, you look around and happiness is nowhere to be found. If you lose your job, if your health is bad, if a loved one passes on into eternity, happiness is nowhere to be found because happiness is directly linked to chance happenings that are totally out of our control or circumstances. You see, there's a reason they call happy hour happy hour. It only lasts an hour or so. Happiness is like scooping up sand in your hands and trying to hold it in your hands. It surely eventually falls through your hands. As Americans, we are endowed with certain unalienable rights such as life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Not the apprehension of happiness, but the pursuit of happiness. And this is all we can do, chase down happiness. But happiness still remains uh, around the next corner, and when we turn the corner there, happiness is again around the next corner. So we chase happiness down, we pursue it, we turn the next corner, and it's like trying to hold water in our hands, and we continue to chase down happiness. No wonder that a recent statistic said that two-thirds of America are unhappy. This is some, what, 250 million of 350 million people? 250 million of 350 million people say, I am unhappy. And they're unhappy because they're seeking happiness. And this is the, this is the irony of joy. We don't apprehend joy. We don't experience joy by seeking joy. It is a byproduct of our relationship with Christ. Because joy will descend with us into the valley of the shadow of death and comfort us and strengthen us. As we read in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, as he was rallying the troops and he said, look, we've got a big job ahead. There's going to be a lot of opposition. And he says this about them. The, uh, the joy of, your Lord, of, of, of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so this is happiness based upon circumstances. And this is joy. It's tethered to Christ. Happiness is fair weather. Joy is faithful. We must pursue happiness and we never apprehend it, but joy is a gift, the result of our salvation and walking in fellowship with Christ. So today we're only going to look at the first couple of verses in Philippians chapter 1. And we'll continue with Philippians chapter 1. The difficulty for me of Philippians chapter 1 is not what to teach, but it's what not to teach. I surely wanted to get through all of chapter 1 today, but it was too deep, too rich, too powerful, too many promises. So I realized that, that we're going to go slowly through the book of Philippians. And we're going to put it under a microscope. And we're going to be equipped with the skill set to walk in the fullness of joy so that like Christ, we will be anointed with joy. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to the book of Philippians. How many of you have your Bibles, by the way? Hold your Bible up. 
Awesome. I like to see that. That's terrific. And if you don't have your Bible, there's one right in front of you. A brother, an awesome brother around here, Ed, uh, scooped these Bibles up for us. It's in the same translation that I preach out of, ESV, English Standard Version. Open up to the book of Philippians, page 980, and the page number in front of you if you pick up that Bible. If you pick up another Bible, I have no idea what page number it is for you. So Philippians, let me pray, let me pray for you. Father, we pray that our heart and our hope would indeed be tethered to you and your presence and your promises and your people as a result of our time in this book of joy. As Luke testified, it's so natural to live in this pursuit of happiness as a plumb line for success. Lord, help us all to turn from that, repent of that, and truly find the joy of the Lord to be our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick up with verse 1. Paul and Timothy. Servants of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a letter about them. This is a letter from them. Today, when you write a letter, you'll write, dear so-and-so, and you'll write the letter, and then you'll sign it at the bottom. Sincerely, shame. In this day and age, it's customary to begin the letter with the author. Paul and Timothy. So as we begin our study in, as the series is titled, Outrageous, Contagious, joy. It's outrageous because it contradicts our circumstances. It's outrageous because it's contrasted with our circumstances. It's outrageous because it is not of this world, and that's the beauty of it. The world didn't give it to us, and the world can't take it away. It's outrageous because it's the gift of heaven deposited into us. As C.S. Lewis said, joy is heaven's serious business. God is committed to your joy. So it's outrageous, but it's also contagious, and it's infectious. And people look at those with this outrageous, contagious joy that the world didn't give them, and the world can't take away, and they know that the Spirit of Christ within us is real, and they want a relationship with our God as well, too. So this letter that teaches us how to walk in outrageous, contagious joy begins with the authors signing it, Paul and Timothy. So we'll begin by talking about this dynamic duo, Paul and Timothy. Paul led Timothy to Christ in his first missionary journey, and Timothy was with Paul in his second missionary journey, and they had a very tender relationship. In fact, Paul viewed Timothy as a son. And Timothy so reflected Paul's heart, his leadership. He was such a carbon copy of Paul in terms of his convictions and passions and heart and motives that Paul said, look, I really don't need to go see you myself because I'm sending Timothy. And if Timothy goes, it's just as good as me going before you. Paul would be in prison, and we'll talk about this. Paul was in prison quite a bit. In fact, when it's, it's, there's a joke about Paul that when he went into a town on his missionary journey, he'd say, hey, where's the prison? I just want to see where I'm going to be staying the night tonight, because he would certainly wind up there. 
But he would find comfort, even in the most difficult of times, when he would remember tears welling up in Timothy's eyes because of Timothy's love for Jesus. Paul and Timothy. So we begin with this dynamic duo. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't begin this letter to this church at Philippi, and we'll talk more in a moment about how this church at Philippi was started, but he doesn't begin this letter by asserting his apostolic authority as he did in other letters, say to the Galatians or say to the Corinthians. As wolves were dividing the flock and casting doubt on Paul's motives and his leadership and his authority, and so Paul would have to assert his authority. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he didn't do that here. He he doesn't assert his title. He says, Paul and Timothy. This is a letter of love. It's a tender letter. It's an intimate letter to a church that didn't abandon him as many saints and many churches did abandon him or discredit him when he was at his lowest, but they affirmed him and they contributed to him and they supported him. They prayed for him. They cried for him. They gave to him when he was at his his lowest of lows. So he begins not asserting his apostolic authority over them, but he asserts with a sense of tenderness. Paul and Timothy. And let's just talk about Paul writing a letter about joy. Because if you knew Paul before Christ, his name was Saul of Tarsus, and Saul of Tarsus and joy were mutually exclusive terms. And it would be laughable to think about Saul of Tarsus ever writing a letter about joy. In fact, Saul of Tarsus explains a little about who he was and what he was like before he met Christ later on in this letter. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes on to explain who he was before he met Christ. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, he was a jerk, really. He was so full of himself, and it just oozed out of his pores. Not only was he so full of himself, he was so condescending and condemning and judgmental of anybody who didn't measure up to the standard that he so proudly set for everybody else. Saul of Tarsus was the kind of guy, and he was a leader of leaders with this enormous energy, this enormous presence who would walk into the room, and I surmise that he would just suck the joy out of the room. As people were nervous and uncomfortable around him. But as we know, as Saul was on the road to Damascus and he met Christ by a blinding light, he fell off his high horse, literally and metaphorically. He was born again. The spirit of Christ was planted in him. Christ in him. The presence of joy in him. The fruit of the spirit, joy, would continue to grow in him. And now in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, listen to how this Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Gospel, good news, the Apostle of joy, listen to his affectionate and tender heart now in verse 3 as he writes the Philippians. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Listen to his encouragement. He's no longer the kind of guy that just walks into the room and sucks the joy out of it, and everybody fears and cowers. Now he's the kind of person that that just lifts joy 
points people to Christ. It affirms them they're still in process. And affirms that God is not done with them. Last night, yesterday afternoon, we had the memorial service. It was a celebration of life for Bay, Baylor Harrelson or John Harrelson. And uh, John had a ministry to, to sexual offenders. And he would go into the prisons when people were at their lowest of lows. Society viewed them as the scum of the earth. Their names and their pictures were plastered all over. Their families were done with them and ashamed of them. They lost their jobs. They lost their families. And here they are in prison. John Harrelson's ministry was to these men. And one man stood up and testified. Do you know what it's like to be that in that low of lows in your life? And he said, John would come in and he would look at you in the eyes. And he would say, God loves you. God is not done with you. God's grace will restore you. God has plans for you. This is how I I expect Paul would lift people's joy. Listen to this tenderness. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Just a beautiful heart, a a shepherd's heart, a pastor's heart poured out to a flock that he has a beautiful burden and love for and vice versa. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution in the church, and they were all scattered throughout it. And then it goes on in verse 2 to talk about how Saul was breathing out violence against the church. So this is, this is the work that God did in Saul of Tarsus's heart. He's breathing out violence against the church. He becomes the apostle Paul. Peace, joy, and love is growing up within him. And now he has this tenderness, this affection, this burden, this love for the church. And he's the church's ambassador of good news and joy. Now, let's talk about Timothy. Timothy is also an unlikely co-author Actually, more than likely, well, he's dictating from Paul. He's an unlikely cohort or dictator of, of being in a, an ambassador of good news and, and the ambassador of joy. He was, uh, his mom was Jewish, his dad was Greek, more than likely raised in a broken home, at least an unequally yoked home. And we read a little bit about Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the promise of Jesus, the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, it's Paul is writing Timothy, my beloved child, you see the affection that Paul has for Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure 
dwells in you as well. So Paul and Timothy, partners in the ministry, ambassadors of the gospel and the joy that is found in the Lord. This is the dynamic duo that has authored this book that drips with joy and equips us to walk in joy. Now, let's look at where this church at Philippi began, and we're going to title this as a very difficult place. So Paul went on his first missionary journey, and this is when Timothy gets saved, and he goes on the second missionary journey, and now he's going on his third missionary journey. There was a city just north of Jerusalem called Antioch that served as Paul's home base, and they would pray over him and send him out. So they sent him out, and Paul goes goes out with all kinds of plans and purposes. As Luke testified earlier, being type A, I'm certain, no doubt about it, Paul was type A. He had it all lined out, exactly where he wanted to go, exactly what he wanted to do. This is what Paul was going to do. He was going to go west, he was going to cut north, and he was going to Asia, and he was going to share the gospel with the folks in Asia. But a door shut. Guess who shut that door? God. Ah, Well, Paul regathered himself, no problem. I will just uh, minister uh, maybe just uh, a little bit west of here. So he goes and it's in Bithynia. So he goes into Bithynia and once again, the door is shut. Guess who shuts that door? God. God shut the door on Paul twice. So he gets prayed over, he's sent out, the door is shut once, the door is shut twice. Does he say, well, oh well, I'll just go back to Antioch? Because God is obviously not moving in this. I mean, couldn't that be discouraging? Especially when he thinks about Peter. Peter stands up to preach. 3,000 get saved. Peter stands up to preach again. 5,000 more get saved. And now he's on this missionary journey. Door shut. Nobody's saved. He tries to go to Bithany. Door shut. Nobody's saved. So he goes to a coastal town in Trios. Doesn't know what to do. He's praying. How interesting for Paul, the illustrious, great, legendary apostle Paul, who wrote a third of the New Testament and who changed the world, has no idea what's going on. He doesn't know his game plan. And if you were to ask him, what's your next step when he's hanging out in trials after the two closed doors, he would say, I don't know. I don't know. We're trying to walk in obedience here. But he has a dream. In trials. And in that dream, he sees a man from Macedonia, and this man from Macedonia says, Come, come over here, come to us. So the next morning, he wakes up, he talks it over with his traveling partners, and they say, This is a God thing, let's go. So they take the gospel to Macedonia, and this is when the gospel first reaches Europe, when it goes from the Asian world into the European world. So, Paul then goes into uh, a city called Philippi, and he has a custom of, of, of walking into the synagogue and using Old Testament scriptures to, to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but there's no synagogue. It's a very small town, or at least a very small gathering, rather, of, uh, it's a very small gathering of Jews. It's a, it's a big set town. It's like a, it's like a mini Rome, and Philippi prided themselves in, in, in executing Roman law to the T. But there's no synagogue, because in order to have a synagogue, you, have, you must have at least ten Jewish men. So he goes down to the river. 
And he goes to the river because the river is where people go to pray if there's no synagogue, just a beautiful place, a scenic place, kind of connect with God and creation. He doesn't see men there, but he sees women. And there in Acts chapter 16, he ends up leading these women to Christ. One of them is Lydia. She was a woman of means. She was a, a, a dyer of purple cloth. She had her own business. She was an entrepreneur. She had her own home. That is where the church at Philippi began, in that home. Not with 5,000 people getting saved. 3,000 people getting saved. Everything uh, going exactly as Paul planned. But it was one closed door after the next, and then leading a couple of women to Christ, who then opened up their home. This is how the church at Philippi began. But everywhere Paul went, Paul got in trouble. There was this young slave girl following, following Paul around, uh, speaking truth, but it was annoying, and it was, it, was, it was demonic, and Paul got tired of it, and he cast the demon out of this young slave girl there in Philippi. What's the big deal about that? Well, this was a slave girl. She had masters. This girl had a, an ability. It was, it, was a de, it was a demonic ability, but an ability nonetheless to foretell the future. That slave girl, when she was free of that demon, lost her power, and so the slave owners lost their ability to make money on her. So they stirred up a riot. They beat Paul. Once again, he winds up in prison. With Silas, it's there in the midnight hour where they're shackled together that they praise God. And they get in all sorts of trouble. And they have to quickly leave Philippi. But the church was born as a result of that. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. So it's a very difficult place. And this church began, again, not by everything going according to Paul's plan, but by one setback after the next. And let that be a reminder to us to persevere, to endure to not grow weary, to keep sowing seeds. Because if we keep sowing seeds in faith and if we keep sowing seeds even in tears, we will reap a harvest with joy and praise. Scripture promises us this. So the third chapter of these first two verses that we're looking at is a divine promise. So we saw a dynamic duo. This is Paul and Timothy writing this letter. And now we see a difficult place that this church began some ten years before this letter was written. And that was Philippi. And now we see a divine promise. Paul writes, we are servants. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And this is so powerful. This is so beautiful. He is right now in prison. It's house arrest. He's in Rome. After Paul's third missionary journey, he goes back to Jerusalem, and once again, a lot of chaos is stirred up. To follow the life of Paul is extremely exciting. I encourage you to go back to Acts, about Acts chapter 10 or 11. That's when Paul picks up, and just keep reading. So, from Jerusalem, he's in prison, and he gets arrested. A riot breaks out, he gets arrested. He appeals to Caesar. Paul's a Roman citizen, and he appeals to the, the court of Caesar, so he goes to Rome. And in going to Rome, he's in a shipwreck. He almost loses his life. He's in prison, and now he's chained to a guard in Rome, the city of Rome. This is not quite how he wanted to get there, but he's there, and he appealed, and he's waiting to present his case to Caesar. And his idea is, I'm going to share the gospel with Caesar, and I'm going to influence the entire world with Christ, but he's in house arrest. And in being house arrest, 
He's chained to a Roman guard, the best of the best, the elite, from Romans, um, uh, from Romans, uh, from, from, from Caesar's palace guards himself, his own secret security, Paul is chained to one of these soldiers. And Paul is excited about this because these are very influential people. And Paul sees an opportunity to share the gospel with every person that's chained to him. And Paul realizes, I'm not the prisoner here, they're the prisoner, because they're going to hear the gospel. And many people did get saved because of this. It's kind of like if you're on an airport, if you're, if you're in an airplane and somebody sits beside you, they're prisoners. And you, gotta, you have to share the gospel with them. And this was the opportunity that Paul had for two years in Rome. And here in Rome, he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. And he says to this church, we are servants. We're servants. Now, some of your translations may interpret this servants. Some of your translations may interpret this as slaves. But if we go to the Greek, the word is doulos. Doulos. And the word doulos means bondservant. And this has an amazing connotation. To be a bondservant isn't the same idea of what we would understand as a slave here in the United States. From the mid to late 1700s up to, you know, to the Civil War. It's not the same idea of a slave. A bond servant is to have been a slave, and you have your freedom. For whatever reason, you served your time, you paid off your debt, and now you're a free man or you're a free woman, but now you choose to continue to be a servant of that household, of that master, because they provided for you. They were good to your family. They were a good man. And you realize that life serving this family is better than life without this family. And this is what it is to be a bondservant. The Old Testament had a better understanding of bondservant, perhaps, in the New Testament. We read about it in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5 through 6. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free... Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear, give him an earring with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So a bond master is a servant who is a willing servant because they understand the goodness of their master. And this is the idea that Paul is communicating. He is saying we are bond servants of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I don't have to be in Rome here. I don't have to be in house arrest. I appeal to Caesar. I I don't have to stir up controversy everywhere I go. I don't have to continue to be beaten and stoned and hit with rods and shipwrecked and and, and to to continue to go. I'm a Roman citizen. I have have an an, an influential and, and affluent means. But I am here in prison because I choose to be Jesus's bond servant. And this is part of his joy. This is part of that joy that contradicted any circumstance that he was in. You see, it's a paradox. Through the blood of Christ, Jesus bought us. He already owns us. We are his. But it's when we say, I am your bondservant. I am 100% surrendered to you, Lord Jesus. That we experience this freedom even if we were in jail. We experience a joy, even if we're in difficulty. So that we say, less of me, Jesus, 
and more of you until there's none of me and it's all of you. And when we are totally surrendered to Christ, Christ is totally shining through us. And when there's no dark areas, there's no hidden areas, there's no secret areas, there's no compartmentalized areas, there's no shadowy areas, there's no shady areas, there's only surrender to Jesus Christ. Christ's light blazes through us like the noonday sun, and we know a joy, as Peter said, that's indescribable and full of glory. And I know some people are afraid to surrender because they say, if I surrender and it's less of me and none of me, well, what about me? What about my personality? That is when you will find out who you really are, who God really made you to be. That's when you will discover the you without fear, the you without timidity, the you that's not self-conscious, the you that doesn't just get defeated by anxiety. That's when you'll find out the masterpiece that God intended for you to be because that is when Christ is shining through you. Less of me and more of you until there's none of me and it's all you. And Christ is shining through you. They were bond servants. And he said about the church in Philippi, and you are saints to all the saints. This meant that they they played for uh, New Orleans, the, the New Orleans Saints. No, that's laughable, isn't it? It's also laughable uh, to think that it means that that they were, um, you know, just Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. You know, you're a saint. You know, we we tend to ascribe sainthood to people if we see that they are acting right, or they never get in trouble. They're a saint. But we usually don't attribute the positive connotation. It's usually the negative. They're no saint. (laughs) Or I'm no saint. So those those are two misconceptions about what a saint is. It's the New Orleans saints, or it's somebody who walks like a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout or not. They're a saint, or they're not a saint. There's another misconception about sainthood by the Catholic Church. The saint is somebody who lived so admirably and performed, I believe, it's two miracles that can be validated. And after, I believe, it's seven years after their death are basically confirmed into the, into the fellowship of the saints. And then people get to pray to them, which is heresy and it's idolatry. A saint is not somebody who prays that, that you pray to. A saint is somebody who through the blood of Christ has the right to pray directly to God. You see how that interpretation of sainthood is saying the exact opposite? A saint is somebody who walked this earth and you pray to. That's an idol. What a saint is, is somebody who's become a Christian. Christ is in their heart. The Spirit indwells them. They're forgiven. And now they can pray boldly. This is a saint. A saint in the Greek is hagiois, and it means set apart, holy, sacred. And being a saint is nothing that we've achieved. Being a saint is something that we receive at the moment of our salvation. The moment we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Spirit of Christ indwells us. We are saints. We are holy. We are set apart. 
We are sacred. We are clothed in the righteousness of God. We are forgiven of our sins. We are children of God. We are heaven-bound, and we can boldly pray anytime we want. A saint is somebody who's been given the promise that what goes up in prayer will come down in power. And this is part of the Philippians' joy. This is part of Paul's joy, that they're totally surrendered to Christ. They're bondservants. But not only that, they're saints. They don't have to walk around like Saul of Tarsus did when he was a Pharisee, trying to achieve happiness and identity, success, nothing like that. It's just grace that they've received, and they've become saints as a result of it. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul said the same thing to the saints in Rome. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So did you know that? Did you know that you are a saint? How many of you knew that? A saint is not something you achieve. It's not somebody you pray to. You are a saint if you're a Christian. In fact, the word saint is used far more times to describe God's children, those who are in Christ, than the word Christian. The word Christian is only used three times, and then only as a derogatory term. But the word saint is our identity in Christ. This is who we are. And this is part of our joy. You are holy. You're loved. You're set apart. You're forgiven. This is what it is to be in Christ. And this is the divine promise that we are servants, we are saints, and not only that, and this is part of our joy in this divine promise. God is sovereign. And we will close out with this. God is sovereign. And he's writing to this church at Philippi, reminiscing about God's sovereignty, about God's faithfulness. Man plans his steps, but man, it's God who orders a good man's life and course. He tried to go to Asia, door closed. He tried to go to Bithynia, door closed. He tried to go to a synagogue, door closed. He tried to lead some men to Christ, door closed. He led Lydia, then he cast a demon out of a girl, then he winds up in prison, he gets beat, has to leave. But a church was born, and he looks back on that, and he said, this is the ministry of failure. This is the ministry of setbacks. This is the ministry of disappointments. This is the ministry of discouragement. This is the ministry of nothing going any way like I planned it to go. But God is sovereign. This tells us we don't have to have it all together. This tells us we don't have to win each day. This tells us that we simply have to surrender our lives to Christ as we are walking bond servants relish in our identity as saints, and God orders our steps for his purposes. He is sovereign. Verse 3 through 6. But let's pick up with verse 12 through 18. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, those soldiers, of Caesars that are chained to him one at a time, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. You see how he's rejoicing in God's sovereignty? Nothing is going according to plan, but those are just facts. What matters is reality. You look around you and you see the factual, but what matters is the actual, and the actual is what God is up to. And what God is up to is something so glorious that's going to rejoice your soul and give hope to the hopeless. And you don't have to understand the facts. You just have to rest your heart in the actual. When life happens unexpectedly, know that God is up to something supernaturally. 
And when God is up to something supernaturally, you anchor your heart. Not in the facts, because what is that? Happiness. But rather you anchor your heart in the actual reality of truth. And what is that? Joy. God is up to something. God is working. God is moving. Would you stand with me, please? True story about an 82-year-old pastor, and uh, he realized he had a skin disease. He had to have 15 operations. As a result of these operations, which were all very painful, he was, he was very embarrassed for the way that he looked because it altered his, this, these operations altered his appearance. So he was very depressed, um, very sullen. His heart was certainly tethered to the, uh, the facts. And he began doing a study on joy, and he realized that joy is available even in situations that contradict joy. And he said, how can I have joy? And he began studying more, and he realized that joy is a gift. He said, so how do I tap into this joy? He didn't know what to do, so he got on his knees. And he didn't know what to pray, so he said, God... If joy, according to John uh, 15 and 16, is a gift, give it to me. And you know something? He felt a joy in his spirit. And he began praising Jesus, and that joy began to grow. This man testifies that he then, in his home, was just dancing before the Lord. And he had so much joy overflowing that he had to get out of the house. So he goes to get a burger and just joy shining through him. And the person behind the counter said, oh, it must be your birthday today. He said, no, it's not my birthday. And she said, well, it must be your anniversary. And he said, no, it's not my anniversary. And she said, well, what then? He said, it's Jesus. And she said, well, I work on Sundays. I don't know about that. This is joy indescribable and full of glory it's joy it's Christ in us when we tether our heart we tether our hope not to circumstances but to truth the truth that we are bond servants the truth that we are saints the truth that God is sovereign when life strikes us unexpectedly God is moving supernaturally the truth that facts are not our identity the truth that Christ is our identity. And you might be right smack dab in the middle of, like Paul, a ministry of surprises, setbacks, disappointments, failures, discouragement, heartache, unexpected turns. Did you know, that was how the church at Philippi was born. And that's how we receive a letter that is dripping with joy, an anointing of joy. And I don't know exactly where your ministry of discouragement, disappointment, setbacks, failures, unexpected turns is going to lead you. As Paul didn't know where it was going to lead him. But I know that it will lead you to praising the heart 
that is overflowing with joy. And you will praise him for his goodness. You'll praise him for his faithfulness. You'll praise him that he's at work in your life. Oh, he's at work. The first step to joy is having Christ come into your heart to live through the person of the Holy Spirit. Let's trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. And this is by getting out of that pharisaical mindset that I have to achieve and win the day and rather realize that Christ has already won eternity for us on the cross. And you trust in what Christ did for you and receive that salvation. And at that moment, the spirit of Christ, joy is in your heart. Let's pray. Just pray, God, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe you paid for my sins on the cross. I trust in that for my salvation. The fact you conquered death three days later. Come into my heart, Jesus. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for making me a saint right now. I am your bond servant. Now, just lead me on this great adventure where you have the wills of my life. Guys, in response, we respond to the word around here different ways as the Spirit leads. Here's how we're going to respond today with outrageous, contagious joy. As we sing this song, uh, don't worry about the person next to you. Just sing thanksgiving that Jesus turns our brokenness into beauty. This is what he does. God, thank you for taking our ministry of disappointments, discouragements, setbacks, and failures, and unexpected turns, and doing your most beautiful work in them. Thank you for bringing beauty out of our brokenness, joy out of our sorrow, dancing out of our weeping, beauty out of ashes. Lord, we just respond. By getting our eyes off the facts and trusting in your truth, we respond by tethering our heart to who you are and who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen.